I'm going to ask you to turn, brethren, to two places, both in your Bible and in your hymnal. In your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 17. And in your hymnal, I'd like to ask you to turn to hymn number 292. I know we've been in the habit of my asking you to pick up your hymnal and turn to your hymnal at the end of the service. I'm going to begin with the hymnal. God of grace and God of glory. Who knows this hymn? Offhand. Okay. Look with me at verse 4. Verse 4 is, has been edited from its original form. <clears throat> it says, Set our feet on lofty places, gird our lives that they may be, Armored with all Christ-like graces in the fight to set men free. Does anybody have a problem with those words? Sounds pretty good. You're wondering how to answer. Uh, armored with all Christ-like graces. That's, that's a good expression. In the fight to set men free. We would agree with that, I guess, if we, depending on what we mean by freedom. This hymn was written by a gentleman by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick. Harry Emerson Fosdick was no friend of the Bible. <laughs> That's putting it bluntly and mildly. For Fosdick, he was really the, the primary um, propagator and advocate of liberalism in the early 20th, 20th century, and he was the primary opponent um, against J. Gretchen Machen. And that time, that period of time, represented a serious contest in which Fosdick wrote a book, or he, excuse me, he preached a sermon in which he raised the question, shall the fundamentalists win? In other words, the fundamentalists, and if you go back into history and ask the question, what do we mean by fundamentalists? Well, we're talking about people who fundamentally believed in the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the incarnation, the basic doctrines like that. Fosdick opposed all those things, and most foundationally, he opposed the authority of Scripture. Years ago, I took the time to read his autobiography and some of his works, uh, one of which is The Modern Use of the Bible, in which he argues that we need to interpret the Bible based upon the culture in which we live. And so, in other words, our understanding of Scripture really should change based upon the culture and the mandates of the culture and the expectations of the culture. Fosdick, to put it simply, was very man-centered. 
and his anthropocentric view of everything, including scripture, resulted in the deconstruction of biblical authority. In his autobiography, which is titled The Living of These Days, he said regarding the Bible, he said, my conclusion was plain. I did not have to believe anything simply because it was in the Bible. The old basis of authority was gone. Truth was an open field to be explained. Nothing, he says, could be settled by a text. By the way, one of the reasons why I began by preaching, I began preaching, the very initial sermons I preached were on the glory of God, God's jealousy for his glory, for this reason. Let me read to you the original verse of verse 4. What you have is an edited version But this is the actual original verse from Fosdick's hymn. It says, let the search, this is just a portion of the verse, let the search for thy salvation be our glory evermore. That's Fosdick. It's not about the glory of God. It's about the glory of man. It's about the exaltation of man in his search for deliverance. So when he talks about the fight to set men free, he's not talking about freedom from the bondage and slavery to sin. He's talking about being freed from the constraints of the ideas of fundamentalism and anything that would bring us to the Bible as being our sole authority. That was the freedom that he had in mind. Like Lucifer himself, the fallen descendants of Adam and Eve perpetually seek their own glory, and that's essentially what we have in Fosdick's hymn. And by the way, regarding Fosdick's autobiography, at one point he actually mocked his grandmother because she told him that if he could not believe the story of Jonah and the whale, that he might as well just surrender all of the Bible itself. Harry should have listened to his grandmother. And he didn't. He was a man who sat out on his own authority. He presided over the Bible as being one who had authority over it, and he sought to set men free from bondage and slavery to what the Bible says. Some time ago, I said to you that there are good and bad songs and hymns throughout history. This is an example of a bad hymn. Please don't ever ask me to sing this hymn. I'm not going to do it. Not that you would ask me to. If you really want to provoke me, go ahead and make that a request, but it's uh, not going to do it. Because really, I cannot mentally separate my, in my mind the author of the hymn and the meanings of the words that he assigned to them in the hymn itself. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why early on I expressed a concern about 
the matter of worship and the priority of the glory of God and how it is that this is what we have to be about. We have to be about the business of glorifying not self, but God himself. And this is why I even bring up the subject of hymnody, because we have to understand that whether it's an old or a new song, we need to be discerning about what we sing when it comes to modern songs and hymns, many are what I would call uh, the moder- of the modern genre, many are what have been called 711 songs that have just seven words and you repeat them 11 times. And they don't have a lot of substance to them. Or some songs are just overly casual where Jesus is kind of like our boyfriend and that's how he's treated. But Jesus is our Lord. When it comes to ancient hymnody, I just mentioned Fosdick's hymn. Or if you go back further to the 5th century, you have the hymns propagated by the disciples of Arius, where they advanced the doctrines that denied the deity of Jesus Christ through their hymnody. And there are many popular Methodist hymns that promote either perfectionism or rank Arminianism. And by the way, I will give a fresh roasted pound of coffee to anyone who can explain to me the line, the sentence that says in the very popular hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Newsflash, canceled sin doesn't have any power if it's really canceled by the power of Christ's redeeming work. By the way, that offer is only good if you can reason from Scripture in your defense of that line. I don't give up my coffee easily. I think you you know that by now. Brother, my point is not to focus on the negative here. Even though I brought up a negative example with Fosdick, my focus really is positive. It's positive in the sense of saying that, listen, we need wisdom not from below which is earthly, natural, and demonic, but we need wisdom from God from above. That which is, first of all, as James says, pure. It's pure. That's the first thing that James wants us to know about God's wisdom. No corruption, no sin, no error whatsoever. Or as David said, the words of the Lord are pure words, tahor, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. And this is why Jesus prayed for us and continues to pray for us, that we would be sanctified in truth. He says, thy word is truth. And in Ephesians 5, we have that beautiful, amazing picture of Christ who is the head of the church. And how it is that he sanctifies his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the, what? With the word. This is not a mud bath. The pure and clean streams of God's word are what clean clean us and cleanse us each and every day. And that's what Jesus uses to cleanse his bride. When the people of God gather to worship, we must set aside and mortify anything that would pollute the pure stream of Scripture. 
That begins with this pulpit. My priority is to preach Scripture, to explain Scripture, to exposit Scripture, and to make sure that I am constantly submitting to the authority of what the text says. Who cares what I think about what the Bible says? It's not about me. And that's why I'm also interested about the music and the songs that we sing. Again, there are poor songs and hymns of every generation. That's one of the back doors through which bad doctrine can creep in unnoticed. There are other ways in which the clean streams of God's word can be corrupted. Oftentimes, popular books by popular authors can achieve this. You know, Jude rebuked the church for allowing men to creep in unnoticed physically in, in the flesh. But oftentimes, books can creep into the local church and bring about corruption of doctrine. I knew a dear friend uh, who, with whom I went to seminary. He was at his church for, I think, no more than six months, and his great crime was that he expressed concern about a popular book that many in the church wanted to use for a study. And he dared to say, I think there's a problem with this. By the way, I shared his, his concern, and he was right to do what he did. And he was out on the street in just six months. The Internet is another back door through which the corruption of God's Word can enter in. Brethren, there's all kinds of stuff out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Even conferences, oftentimes I'm asked, are you going to go to this conference? Are you going to go to that conference? I'm not anti-conference. I just want to be very limited both in the books that I read and the conferences that I attend because, again, there's a lot of stuff out there that's actually not helpful. Besides, I don't have the time, really, to focus on anything other than what that which is going to herald the purity of God's Word. What's the solution in all of this? Yeah, there are lots of backdoors and ways in which the church can be corrupted with false teaching. The solution is, is that we must all be students of God's pure Word. We must, we must pray that God would sanctify us in His Word, and this requires discipline from us all and discernment from us all. And those that are being sanctified by God's word are clearly the objects of Christ's effectual prayer in John 17 because he prayed for his sheep, for his people, that we would be sanctified in truth. He says, thy word is truth. Such people will be Bereans, such individuals will walk circumspectly, carefully, mindfully, because the days are evil, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. Brethren, in the end, I believe that God's word is like a magnet. It draws and attracts God's children while repelling those who are not his. It is in this sense that God's word supplies a crucial polarizing test among those who claim to be the followers of God. And men like Fosdick clearly failed that test. So I have a question for you. Why is God's word 
the church's sole foundation. Why is this so important? I know you know the answer, but I'd like for us to review the answer to that question here this morning. I want us to consult Scripture because Scripture answers this question time and again. And this is just going to be a summary. Like every other sermon where we're talking about these large themes and ideas, we're just going to summarize a little bit here about this question of why it is that the Word of God is the church's foundation. First of all, our first point of analysis, and we're just going to have actually just two points of analysis with a consideration of the implications of these truths. But here are the two main things we're going to consider. Number one, Scripture brings about Christ-exalting unity in the church. I think you knew that already. But we need to think about and study together why that is so important. Scripture brings about Christ-exalting unity in the church. The second point of observation we're going to make is this. Scripture produces Christ-like maturity in the church. And by the way, unity and maturity are connected. Those ideas are connected, but maturity is really the outflow and reality of unity. If you've ever met a double-minded person, no offense to the children here, but I, I can even refer to myself. As a young person, I was extremely double-minded. This is a part of the foolishness of youth. Um, at one point in time, you think that this is right, and then another point you think that is right, and you're constantly being tossed about here and there between all these competing philosophies and ideas, and it takes maturity to come to the point where you know what is true and what is false. The body of Christ, when it's unified, is mature. When it's not unified around the word, all that you have is immaturity. Again, these ideas are connected, but I want us to distill them and consider them individually. And then we'll consider some of the implications of what we're looking at here this morning. So first of all, as I said, Scripture brings about Christ-exalting unity in the church. And so I've already asked you to turn to John 17 Look with me at the 17th verse of John 17. And this is what we partially looked at recently. I want to extend our reading in this text a little bit further. What a beautiful thing it is to hear the words of Christ as he prays for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Notice that our Savior prays twice that we would be sanctified in the truth. Remember, we talked about that word sanctified, the word hagios, 
Holy is the primitive idea of the word here, but it's this notion of being consecrated and set apart for the use of God. Ultimately, we are to be sanctified and set apart for God's purposes for his use. And you'll notice time and time and time again in this text, the means by which we are sanctified is by God's word, his truth. His word is truth. But look with me at verse 21. You look at that verse, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, hey, that's a henna clause in the Greek. I'm glad you noticed that. It is a henna clause in the Greek, which means it's a purpose statement. I'm kidding, unless you're reading a Greek text. Notice verse 21. It is a henna clause, a purpose statement. What is the purpose that is ultimately achieved through our being sanctified in the truth? So that, or in order that, they may all be one, Jesus says. A henna clause is, again, it's a purpose clause. It helps us to understand what it is that is achieved as the result of some other action. In other words, our sanctification achieves unity. Unity. And that's the very purpose for which we have been redeemed. There are many henna clauses in this chapter, in this prayer, but I want to bring you back to the antecedent, the ultimate antecedent henna clause in the prayer. Go back with me to the beginning of the chapter, to the beginning of the prayer in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus begins his prayer, he says this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, and there's the word that, Hineclaus, that or in order that to all whom you have given him, he may give what? Eternal life. Why did the Father give his elect people to the Son? in order that the Son would give them life. When you connect these henna clauses and you understand that everything is connected in thought, you have to understand that from the beginning all the way to the section that we just read here in verses 17 through 21, what we're seeing is is the reality of the fact that God gives us life so that we would be sanctified and that the result would be that we would be what? Unified. We're not given life and we're not given redemption so that we can all be a bunch of little autonomous people who just do our own thing. Believe what you want to believe. Think as you wish to think. No, he redeems us so that we would be a unified people who have the mind of Christ. And there's no other way to achieve that, according to Jesus' prayer, than by means of the word of God. God, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. And we have to understand that the unity of which Jesus, uh, about which Jesus prays is important because it is our unity in Christ 
that conveys and communicates his glory. Again, he says in verse 21 that they may be one, and then he says later on that they may believe that thou didst send me. This is really a remarkable prayer. It's a remarkable lesson. It helps us to think about and understand the fact we've been given life. We're called to be sanctified. We're called to be unified. Why? So that as people see us as the body of Christ, they would know and understand that we serve the Redeemer who was sent from the Father. We're not representing ourselves. We're representing him, the one who gave us this life. And so when Christ's bride embraces biblical unity, she manifests the glory of her Savior, the Lord God himself, who is perfectly unified. And without this unity, what do you have? Chaos. Isn't it remarkable that of all the churches to whom the Apostle Paul wrote, probably the most problematic church was the church at Corinth. They had competition, to be sure, But Corinth was fraught with all kinds of division and problems. And this is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14.33, what he says, God is not the author of confusion. He was refuting them in the manner in which they were representing the name of Christ. They were communicating nothing but confusion and disunity. And he was saying, listen, you're not representing Christ when you do this. You're just representing your own flesh and your own foolishness. So I have a question for you. What does this unity actually look like? Well, we have an example, a beautiful example in Scripture in the book of Acts. Let me ask you to hold your place in John 17. We'll be back here. But we see in Acts chapter 2 that Peter, in preaching the gospel... That in the proclamation of the gospel, we see that there were 3,000 souls, Luke tells us, who were redeemed in Jerusalem. By the way, have you ever been to a church where they talk about how many baptisms they had in a particular week and how many conversions, and and they've got the numbers up on the wall? Living in the South in the Bible Belt, this is actually a thing. I don't know if this is a thing here, but... You know, they're, they're constantly talking about the numbers, and, and they're kind of hopeful that all the people that they baptized are saved. You know what you have here? You have God telling us that there were actually 3,000 souls who were actually saved. This is not a speculative thing. This is, this is a, a body of people who are redeemed. They are spirit-filled. And so you have to ask the question, well, what do they do? What do spirit-filled people do when they get together as the body of Christ. Well, in verse 42, it says this. Number one, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number two, they were continually devoted to fellowship, assembling together as a people of God. Thirdly, the breaking of bread, the Lord's table. And the sharing of meals. And then finally to prayer. That's it. Where are all the programs? This is the program. This is what you have when you have a unified people of God who are assembled together. They are continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
And then we read on in verse 46 and we see the manifestation of that unity where it says that day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They're not perfect people, but they're redeemed people and they're unified. Notice what's first on the list. Think about that. The first thing on the list is the matter that is foundational to everything else. They were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles teaching? Were they teaching their own opinions and ideas? No, they were apostles of Jesus Christ, and they bore the very authority of Jesus Christ himself. They were preaching the word. They were proclaiming the word. And because of that, their fellowship was blessed. Because of that, their meals taken together and the Lord's table was blessed. And because of this, their prayers were informed by Scripture so that they were honoring God as they prayed to Him. But I ask you, what would happen if you took away priority number one? This perpetual devotion to the teaching of the Word of God. What happens to the entire list? Well, everything falls apart. And you get what you end up with when you read through the New Testament. Many of the epistles that were written were written in order to correct the errors of the churches. The tares of the enemy had been planted in their midst, and suddenly they're in the middle of all these battles and contests. So I already mentioned Corinth. They had personality divisions. They were abusing the gifts of the, of the, of the Spirit. And they were entertaining the doctrines of false apostles. Jude had to rebuke the church by virtue of the fact that they were allowing licentious teachers to creep in unnoticed. At Colossae, there were those who were being taken captive, being taken prisoner by empty philosophies and ideologies. And at Galatia, they were substituting the true gospel for a false gospel, which says it's Jesus Christ, his finished work, plus your works. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you are completed in Christ. Now, once you take away the priority of being perpetually devoted to the word of God, everything else falls apart. Why? Because it is by the word that we are sanctified and unified. That's it. It's not a complicated concept, but oh my, it's so easy to ruin. It is so easy to ruin. This is why Paul talked to, and in writing to the church at Corinth, he expresses concern that they had drifted away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Oh, how easy it is to stray from that priority. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to another text. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, so we continue further this priority and importance of the unity of the body of Christ. 
Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner, axios, worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What does that mean? The word axios speaks of the idea of a scale. And so he's basically saying, here's here's the, the gospel call in which you've been called, and here's the walk that you're to walk. Let your walk be in conformity with your calling in Christ. Then he says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of, pre, uh, bond of peace. My translation has the word preserve. I don't know if you have anything that's much different. I hope none of your translations say create. Because we don't create unity. God does. We're called to preserve what he created. The word preserve is the word terrain from the Greek word tereo, which means to guard like a soldier. We're to be guardians, in other words, uh, and soldiers who protect and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Then he gets to the reality of the creation of the unity of the body of Christ, which is the work of God. He says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then in verses 8 through 10, He talks about Christ's condescension and exaltation to the heavens that he might give sacrificially gifts to the church. And what are those gifts? Well, we read about that in verse 11. And yes, I'm summarizing the text, but he says, these are the gifts that were sacrificially given by Christ to the church. He says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity, to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity. Jesus laid down his life and was raised again and exalted to the right hand of the Father and gave gifts to the church for our unification. This is the goal. This is the very thing for which he prayed. And this is the very work that he is achieving in his church. The word of God is communicated by his messengers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. They are given to the church so that the word of God would be proclaimed, so that we would be sanctified by that word, so that we would be unified together as his people. Seeing seeing the theme here? Brethren, this is important. It's crucial. We don't have flesh and blood apostles today, but we have the word of God that they proclaimed. And I ask you the question, is there any less authority in this word today? Just because we don't have flesh and blood apostles today? No, 
uh, by the way, there are some who have tried to, by their own invention and craftiness, try to argue that we do have apostles today. Um, I think it was C. Peter Wagner who established an apostolic roundtable, which, by the way, there was an annual membership you had to pay in order to be a part of the apostolic roundtable. You know, there's something, something wrong if you have to pay a membership fee to be in a club like that. kind of speaks for itself, I would say. No, the authority of God's revelation was just as powerful in the day of the apostles as it is today. And that authority continues to this day. And this is the same word that is used instrumentally in our lives to sanctify us and to unify us so that the world would know that we have been redeemed by the one sent from the Father. That's our message. We're the children of God, and our good shepherd is Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? We know it by his word. We've been entrusted with the written record of God's word, and it remains as the only foundation of Christ's church the foundation that was laid, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, by the apostles and prophets in Christ Jesus is the cornerstone of that foundation. And it's not being added to, nor is it to be taken away from. It is an all-sufficient foundation laid down once for all for the building up of the body of Christ on top of it. Brethren, this is what we need. We need the word so that we would be a unified people and that we would be brought to maturity. And again, those ideas are connected. So we continue. This is our second point. Scripture produces Christ-like maturity in the church. Let me read again. Ephesians 4, if you could go back to Ephesians 4, verse 11 where he says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a teleon, a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, which is another way of saying that the maturity that we're to be brought to is one that reflects the beauty and the glory of Christ himself. You know, a corollary text and idea to this comes to us in 2 Timothy 3.16 when Paul is writing to Timothy and he's warning, him, warning Timothy about the reality of the evil in the world and the fact that Men will proceed from bad to worse, and he's basically letting, know, letting Timothy know how he's going to combat and deal with the evils of the world. And he says this, it's scripture. How are you going to address the evils of the world that surround us? It's by means of scripture. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Here's another purpose clause, so that the man of God may be complete or mature or adequate, equipped for every good work. Maturity, 
completeness, maturity that is reflective of the very nature of Christ himself. This is what we are to be seeking in our lives, individually and corporately as the body of Christ. Now, let me just say this, and I'm sure you understand this already, but just for the clarification, there's a difference between having childlike faith and childishness. Sometimes I think we confuse these ideas. Jesus talks about childlike faith in Matthew 18, where we're to go to God with a trust that a a little child has in their their parents, in, in a father. Every baby I've ever held doesn't look at me and say, hey, are you uh, qualified to do this? You sure you can hold me? They just rest in your arms and, uh, and just enjoy the moment. That's childlike faith. Childishness is immaturity. Childishness is double-mindedness. It is reckless naivete. But the unity that we're called to seek and achieve by means of the word is to achieve this end, is that we are to become mature to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he gives us yet another hint clause. In verse 14, he says, as a result of this maturity, We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Paul says, you know what? If you're growing in Christ and becoming mature, you're not going to be led astray easily. You're going to be so secured on the unity of God's word that when someone comes along and whispers into your ear some strange and alien doctrine, you'll be able to pick it out right away rather than being like those who were tossed about by the waves and wind of false doctrine. Well, when I was in seminary in 1994 here in California, the ecumenical movement called evangelicals and Catholics together sought the unification of evangelicals and Roman Catholicism. And they had a lot of big-name supporters. Well, they were big names at the time, I guess, but uh, Pat Robertson, Bill Bright, sadly, J.I. Packer joined their ranks in endorsing this so-called unity. And one of their chief texts quoted in their papers, in their documentation, was the text of John 17, where Jesus says that they may be one. You know, it was stunning watching so many people who became hoodwinked by this movement. Whereby they thought and imagined that, well, yeah, there's really not a lot of difference between Roman Catholics and Evangelicals. It's just a form difference. It's not about the substance of doctrine. But brethren, their quotation of John 17, 21, where Jesus says that they might be one, was just a ruse because there's no unity between the gospel and the gospel-destroying doctrine of purgatory. There's no unity between the gospel and baptismal regeneration. 
There's no unity between the gospel and the blasphemous doctrine of transubstantiation where Christ is seen as being re-sacrificed every time and that you're literally drinking and eating his blood and his, eating his flesh. And there's no unity between the gospel and the doctrine of auricular confession to the priest. We don't, we don't pray and confess to a priest here in this world. We pray to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. All of these things denigrate and undermine the gospel. These are not merely distinctions of form, but they get to the substance of the doctrines which destroy the gospel itself. Peter Kreeft, who was one of the ECT uh, signers of the ECT document, said this in a book that he wrote called Ecumenical Jihad. He said, yes, even an ecumenical jihad is possible and is called for for the simple and strong reason that even Muslims and Christians preach and practice the same first commandment. Islam, total surrender, submission of the human will to the divine will. We fight side by side, not only because we face a common enemy, above all, because we serve and worship the same divine commander. And shockingly, he even incorporated the idea of our working together with agnostics and even atheists in the cause of some morality that he was trying to promote. Brethren, we need to witness to Muslims and not assume that we're serving the same God. Sadly, they serve an idol. They need Christ. And the Jesus Christ of Islam is a blasphemous imagination that is contrary to Scripture. Why did the Father send the Son? He did so so that we would see that in him the covenant, the eternal covenant of redemption is fulfilled in the work of Christ. So that we would understand that that all that the Father gave to the Son would be given eternal life. And we are given eternal life as a gift given by God. It's not some sort of a synergistic work of Christ plus our own work. We study that and we examine that in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace we are saved through faith and that not of works so that no one would boast. And so as a result, Paul says, as a result of the word that has been given to the church, as a result of the unity that is achieved through this, as a result of the maturity that we achieve through this, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by the, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceit, deceitful scheming. All of that is a negative example of maturity, or it's a description of immaturity. He then says this positively, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is maturity. 
a group of people who are seeking to build up one another in Christ. And we can't do that apart from the Word of God. I already mentioned the early church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Again, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And it says that day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple, one mind, unity, right? And breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. It says in verse 43, reverence, gladness, sincerity. These are the affections that you find in the heart of a child of God as they serve. Servitude that is brought forth with the affections of gladness, sincerity, and reverence for Christ. Remember we were talking about how it is that Paul says that we are to serve one another in the what? In the fear of Christ, Ephesians 5.21. Gladness, sincerity, and reverence, or fear, phobos. All these things you will find in a spirit-filled church. Scripture is sanctifying, it is unifying, and it yields the precious fruit of maturity. And such maturity glorifies Christ. And brethren, we don't create this unity again, but we're called to guard it like soldiers. Each and every one of you are soldiers guarding and preserving the unity of the body of Christ. We're all called to this. And this is a battle. This is a contest. Again, there are many back doors through which the purity of God's word can be corrupted. We have to be guardians against such corruption because everything is at stake. Ultimately, our servitude in the glory of Christ is at stake. Here are a few implications, brethren, I'd like to share with you. <clears throat> First of all, we need to remember the reality of Scripture's timeless value. I already stipulated the principle, but the authority of God's Word back in the era of the apostles is no greater or no less than what we have today. I've heard people say things like, you know, it'd be better if we actually had living apostles here in the present day. They'd be able to straighten everything out. Well, I would say to those people, go back and read your New, your New Testament. You know, many at the church at Corinth mocked and derided Paul and his authority as an apostle. <laughs> if we had physical flesh and blood apostles today, that wouldn't necessarily change human hearts. God's word is God's word, whether you have a flesh and blood apostle or not. So we listed the confusion and the, the problems that were at Corinth in Colossae, Galatia, Jude. And if you really want to be struck with rebukes in Scripture against ungodliness in the church, read Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor where he issues some of the most severe rebukes even saying to the church of, of Laodicea that he wanted to vomit them out. 
because of their hypocrisy. The voice of Christ is sufficiently revealed through his word. And so we hear the voice of Jesus every time we open the pages of Holy Writ. We sang the song, Speak, O Lord, where it says, Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to do what? To receive the food of your holy word. This is how we hear from God. The second matter I'd like to share with you here is this, is a, a reminder, brethren. And it's a warning and a reminder. As long as the church exists on earth, we will have an enemy who will seek to undermine this authoritative word. Satan hates God. He hates his people. And he understands the power and the importance of the word of God, which is why he opposed the very utterance of God from the very beginning. Remember how it is that the serpent went to the woman and said these words to the woman. Remember what he said. Indeed, has God said. Af ki amar. Kylan Dalich referred to this expression as an interrogative expressing surprise. Really, God said that to you? Why would he say such a thing? Have you ever been in a conversation where somebody says something just kind of crazy and you go, what are you saying? What irreverence from Satan. God would say that to you? He would prohibit you from enjoying what is here and he's limiting you in terms of what you can eat here in the garden. And the inference is, is that he's saying that God is not good, right? God has not supplied what they need. It's an undermining of God's holiness and his goodness. For us as the children of God, when God reveals himself, what's, what's our response to be? Instead of saying, why would you say that? Really, our response is to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. But there's also the irreverence in this expression. Because when he refers to God, he doesn't re refer to him in view of the formal title that is given to God throughout the creation narrative. Yahweh Elohim. But he instead uses the more generic term, Elohim, which could be used of even false gods. And it really shows you the disdain of Satan for the Almighty. You know, most of the pablum offered on the internet and in bookstores I believe can be easily eliminated by considering what I might call the serpent principle. If you look at what Satan did in his address to Eve, in his questioning of God's authority, it's pretty self-evident. What he's doing, he's not honoring God in his word. You know, if you hear sermons or read books that are fraught with man-centered storytelling 
and man-centered reasoning, they're going to be dangerous books. They might occasionally land on a point of truth here and there, but they're not going to be consistent because if you're not submitting to the authority of God's Word and reasoning from the Scriptures, then it's like a broken thermometer. It's going to be correct every now and then when the temperature just happens to intersect wherever that thermometer is stuck. But you would never use a broken thermometer to know what the temperature is, now would you? And the examples are too numerous to count. I mentioned the Evangelical and Catholic Together movement, Peter Kreeft. I recently mentioned Zane Hodges, who tells a lot of stories in order to establish his theological musings. But brethren, I would just say to you, if you pick up a book and the author is just expositing experiences and their ideas, and then they throw in a scripture to attach to their ideas, just get another book. Get one that actually does what Luke describes when he was describing the apostolic preaching of Paul when he was at Thessalonica. Paul reasoned, he says, from the what? Scriptures. Premise, conclusion. If your premise is not Scripture but is something else, you got a problem. As the children of God, we have a responsibility to guard and preserve the unity of the body of Christ. A unity that is achieved by means of the word and a unity that, is, that, that pr- produces maturity and that maturity then yields the, the witness that we have to this world that the one who redeemed us was indeed sent from the Father and he is the only hope of mankind. And so we're Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Because we understand that this is how we are unified, matured, and this is how we're made better witnesses for Christ. I hope you can read this. You have an insert in your bulletin. I heard the voice of Jesus say, As we've just testified, we hear the voice of our Savior through the Word. And it's very simple, as we've already indicated before. The simple reality is is that as His sheep, we hear His voice and we do what? We follow Him. That's our privilege. That's our joy. Now, brethren, I don't know if you know this hymn, and I'm hesitant to ask because just looking at a title, you may not recognize it. But I want you to consider the beauty and simplicity of this this hymn. In verse 3 it says, I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. He says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the what? The light of the world. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star my son. And in that light of life, I'll walk till traveling days are done. Let's stand together. Let's sing this to the Lord.
voice of Jesus say, Come on to me and rest. Lay down thy weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in Him. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, and morn shall rise, and all thy day be Jesus, and I found in him I saw my son, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us life, that you sanctify us that you unify us and mature us to the end, Lord, that we would glorify you. Oh, Lord, we pray for daily grace to live to this very end, that we would not live for our own glory nor seek our own exaltation, but that we would seek the exaltation of our Heavenly Father, of Christ who redeemed us. Precious Heavenly Father, grant us grace to this end. May it be that we would, with joy and glad hearts, do this and do so knowing that you have indeed perfectly redeemed us. Our only boasting is found in the one who redeemed us. We are not to boast in any of our works. But the one who declared from the cross, it is finished, is the one that we exalt. Bless us, Lord, as we go out from here, and may we take the principles learned here this morning and grow in them and rejoice in them more and more each day. And all these things we pray in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ.